Welcome to What the Plasma, the podcast where you'll learn more about the importance of blood and plasma. Fine-tune your knowledge about this highly misunderstood industry and hear interviews with patients, donors, and people on the front lines. Let's get started with your host, Mason St. Felix. Welcome to What the Plasma. I am your host, Mason St. Felix, founder and CEO of iPlasma. This episode launches our new mini-series about patient advocacy. We will interview and introduce some known and unknown patient advocate groups and individual advocates within Plasma. Our goal is to highlight the important work being carried out on a daily basis to ensure patients have access to the therapies they need. Also, we hope to point many patients out there looking for support in the right direction. To launch us off, I am excited to welcome back Megan Ryan, a primary immune deficiency advocate. Megan will join us after this quick break. Over 1 million patients with rare and chronic diseases rely on plasma. Your plasma donation helps people live healthier and happier lives. Your donation matters. Earn extra cash while saving lives. Become a donor today. Find a center near you on iPlasma.life. Thank you. Hey, Megan, thank you for uh, joining What the Plasma again. Welcome back. Thanks, Mason. I'm happy to be back at What the Plasma. All right. Well, last last conversation here, we, we spent some time really talking about your experience as a patient. And, you know, I thought it would be great to have you back on the show where, where we can just discuss your other role, which is around patient advocacy and really just understand what that really is and, and some of the things that you're currently doing um, within the community. Well, thanks. Being a patient during this time, as well as being a patient advocate during this time. So it, as a patient, sometimes I've experienced a lot of learning about medical research and how different disease states are treated. I feel like I've been primed for this pandemic because being diagnosed in 2001, I've been practicing many of the techniques that we've been learning about over the past three or so months. And so I've been doing what people have been saying to do for a long time, avoided crowded venues, cleaning high touch surfaces, frequent hand washing and all that. At the same time, I can say I've had feelings of overwhelm. I've recognized that prior to the past few months, the decisions that I made were largely my choice. Now I faced a little bit more of imposed isolation and for a period of probably a long time. I've wondered when I'm going to see my friends and family again and when this pandemic is going to be over and life can return to normal, whatever normal means. You know, I've, it's given me an opportunity to pause and reflect that I know my primary immune deficiency is going to be with me for the rest of my life. 
And just like that, this COVID-19 is likely going to be around for quite a while. So I've learned to adapt to new normals with my immune deficiency, and I'm learning to adapt to new normals in the time that we're living in. So like many, I've had a roller coaster of feelings over the past 10 or so weeks, feelings of accomplishment from cleaning out a closet with newfound spare time, are feelings of loneliness and isolation from not spending time with friends and family. But I've learned and recognized that I've had a good history of being able to bounce back. And by focusing on the positives and through this resilience, I'm gonna be able to adjust to this new period of normal. And taking that into the role of a patient advocate, from my immune deficiency, I've learned that a sense of community is really important. It's through the Immune Deficiency Foundation that I've been able to connect in with like-minded persons living with immune deficiencies. During COVID-19, I applied that thinking about community and made it a point to check in with, uh, for example, a retired couple in my neighborhood every day. They've been some recipients of some quarantine baking, but being there for each other is very important during this time and that is what the role of a patient advocate is, supporting the patient community and being there to support the mission of the organizations that we represent as patient advocates and patient volunteers. With all that in mind, the Immune Deficiency Foundation has been hosting patient and caregiver education meetings. And I was a part of a patient champions panel last month sharing my experiences about you know isolation and what it's meant and what I've learned from it. Tomorrow night, I'm going to facilitate the first of a series of virtual support groups for those living in the immediate Houston area. We've been working on getting these online support groups off and running for the past month. And we're, we know having these online communities and these uh, virtual meetings is going to be important as the normal face-to-face -face meetings are not going to be happening for quite a while. Yeah. Um, another role of a patient advocate are, is that sometimes they're involved in public policy advocacy work. What does that mean? Um, that means that they're invited to share information with legislatures that legislatures that are important about our patient community. So each spring, the Immune Deficiency Foundation hosts an advocacy day in Washington, D.C., where patients and caregivers are invited to Capitol Hill to speak with members of Congress. Well, as you could imagine, in April, no one was traveling and no one was making in-person visits in Washington, D.C. So the Immune Deficiency Foundation organized that all with virtual visits. So we had, um, I was a part of a group, our teams of people who spoke with elected officials who represent us in Washington, D.C. and both the House of Representatives and the Senate talking about issues that impact our patient community. So that during this time, although many things have changed, patient advocates and those patient volunteers have been able to reach out to our community and still make a difference, even though we haven't had any in-person events. It's been that important sense of community that is, imp is critical during this period. Yeah, the, the way I, I view this is, you know, based on, you know, what you just described is really being that glue that helps to really help um, 
patients understand. I don't want to say cope because I don't think it's necessarily just coping, but really understand that there's a community out there that's out there to really support them and be behind them um, and, and give them guidance, give them so, you know the, the necessary uh, skill sets that they need to really be able to to uh, understand, um, you know, in your case, immunodeficiencies really understand what does that mean, what, uh, what does that entail, and how they also can live a, a healthy lifestyle through it. So, you know, th that's that's a really amazing that that's an amazing thing to to do because um, a lot of what you're describing right now really could be uh, same things that could be applied to the day to day individuals today. Um, as we start to turn and move, uh, you know, to the other side of, of COVID, because we expect, obviously, this is going to be around for a, a while. So a lot of these could, a lot of these lessons, honestly, could be easily applied to the everyday person. Yeah, that's what I think. Like I said, I think I've been pandemic prepping for a while in terms of the mental health aspects of it. And that's brought me to a place that's been able to help others. And even in this role of patient advocacy, a lot of times it's working with members of our patient community to sort fact from fiction and to point people to the direction of what is really qualified information. Right now, there is so much out there. And, you know, I've, I think I told you in a previous episode, I was thankful that the internet wasn't as widely available when I was first diagnosed. And so even today, you have to sort you know, different points of view and what's qu good quality information versus less quality information. So we're all faced with that now. So I've learned a lot to get me to where we are today. Yeah, no, very, 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 very true. The, the internet is um, it's a blessing, but also at the same time, it is, it is one thing that can easily just, you know, with easily spread messages across the board that are just, it's, it's, it's amazing to see what you can find on social media if you if you just open it up at this point. Don't um, go down too many rabbit holes. <laughs> All right. So when when so what what are some of the challenges for um, the immunodeficiency patient community as a whole, and and not necessarily as it relates to COVID nineteen, but really wanting to understand as a patient advocate from your perspective. Um, what are some of the challenges that you see for um, the immunodeficiency patient community? Mason, I see two, and I'll, I'll point each of these out, and they're two different situations and challenges that the patient community faces very broadly, although each individual faces unique challenges to their personal diagnosis. The first one is having others, including their immediate family member, their extended family members, their friends, their colleagues, understand what that living with an immune deficiency is not a one-time acute illness. It's a lifelong condition that requires a commitment to long-term medical therapy. And so, like I said earlier, some patients become isolated from family members and friends who may not understand the implications of chronic illness. Some friends and family members may try to offer interesting cures like a certain diet or exercise regimen or um, vitamins, essential oils or natural therapies as an alternative treatment. Some patients have been told by friends and family that their illness is all in their head and they just need to get out and live in sunshine, fresh air, and 
all those things will make one better. But you know, having people around you that understand these challenges and work with you, you know, but there are a lot of people that don't and don't accept that. So that's one of the challenges is having the support and having others understand that this diagnosis is a lifelong diagnosis. The second is a really challenging one that you only can work through over time, and that's the coordination of medical care. In addition to living with an immune deficiency, many patients have to manage other conditions. For me, that's some autoimmune diseases, as well as just routine preventative care. For the patient or the patient and their caregivers, their spouse or family member, that requires managing multiple medical specialists and making sure those specialists are communicating with one another. Working to get those specialists to communicate is sometimes a heroic feat. Um, there's no, I don't have a simple solution for how you get those specialists to all communicate with each other, although you sometimes have to test drive doctors and make sure they're a good fit for you and they have the the practice and the nursing staff and administrative staff support in their office to make all that happen. It's sometimes managing also then the complex maze of insurance approvals and authorizations, and then working with another piece of the medical supply chain, and that's the specialty pharmacy that provides the products, the medication that must be delivered correctly and with the right supplies. So the coordination of medical care is often a significant challenge that a person living with a primary immune deficiency faces. And, and with those challenges, one of the things that really stand out to me on what you said is um, essentially knowing that you actually have an immune deficiency, right? So getting diagnosed um, is really critical to truly uh, understanding and getting the right and proper care. So that, that really leads me to, you know, to ask, like, what should a person do if they believe they may have an immune deficiency? So let me first start off with what is an immune deficiency going back a little bit. So an immune deficiency is a failure of the immune system to protect the body adequately from an infection due to the absence of some part of one's complex immune system. A primary immune deficiency, in my case, and what I live with, is usually inherited or caused by a problem in the genes of the cells of the immune system. And I will say, from most patient experiencing experiences, getting diagnosed is not very easy. Each member of our patient community has a diagnosis story, and many begin with a history of serious or recurring infections that don't clear with ordinary treatment. But diagnosis is the key for treatment and those long-term long positive outlooks. So if a person thinks they may have an immune deficiency, um, they're going to have to go you know, discuss with their physician their medical history of persistent and, and possibly severe infections that don't clear with the ordinary antibiotic treatment. And prop, then proper testing is ordered by a physician that starts with immunoglobulin levels. 
then further testing, including a vaccine challenge, is needed to be performed by a specialist. Usually that's a clinical immunologist. And it's not a quick process. It requires multiple visits because the lab, the testing has to be ordered, the lab work has to be done, a period of time has to elapse, looking at how that person responds to these vaccine challenges. And all this lab work just doesn't happen overnight. Um, so, a, and it should be done very thoughtfully because a person with the primary immune deficiency, as I said earlier, it's a lifelong diagnosis and requires significant treatment uh, that must be approved by insurance and a commitment to that treatment. So that's why the diagnosis process takes a while and does not necessarily happen quickly. And like I said, every patient has their own diagnosis story of what led them to talk with their doctor or their doctor explore this further. Yeah, can you share a, a little bit about your story? My diagnosis story is rather atypical. Um, my diagnosis occurred in the summer of 2001, and I was very fortunate to have to establish a new relationship with a primary care physician. And most of her practice was focused on the immune compromised community from HIV and AIDS. So I didn't know that at the time, but I went to her with a unrelated medical condition. We had just moved to Houston. And so she said, you know, one, you need full laboratory work just because, you know, you're young, but you still need to have that as a baseline. She started trying to uncover of why I had this unrelated issue and determined that there's some bigger things going on. And because she was a primary care physician, but she knew she was getting well out of her league when she started looking at some of the lab work that she ran. So she was able to get me into a clinical immunologist who then started putting a, a medical history together for me. I had to go back to back all 24 years and ask my mom questions about me as a baby and having... Um, uh, one pneumonia as a child and getting having cat scratch fever as a child and some other things. I was always a person who was able to generally bounce back, but my diagnosis story is somewhat unique in that we probably caught this immune deficiency rather early, although we put some things together and it made more sense of why this diagnosis made sense. I remember getting a call from the nurse of the clinical immunologist who took my case, and she asked me where I was. And I told her very factually, I'm at the intersection of Westheimer and 610 on my giant cell phone that we had at that time. And she's like, you're not in the hospital? And I'm like, no. She said, we're just surprised that you're out living a normal life with these immunoglobulin levels that are very, very low, Dr. Houston can see you next week. And he wants to see you because he hasn't seen many patients who are living out in the real world with the, those immunoglobulin levels. So again, I was thankful for a rather quick diagnosis. One, because the primary care physician that I saw to establish that relationship uh, knew things about immune deficiencies broadly from her work 
in the HIV AIDS community and that I was able to get into a clinical immunologist. Mason, I'll tell you, there aren't many clinical immunologists out. It's not just this broad practice that a lot of physicians go into that specialty. It's a yeah. very it's a very specialized field. And so I'm thankful that I lived in Houston with the Texas Medical Center and that there are very well-established immunologists here in Houston. So I consider myself very lucky in terms of my diagnosis story um, and why mine was so quick. That's not typical of many patients. Yeah, and it, it almost sounds like, you know, you know, in your case, there's there's some luck there being that you happen to end up in Houston in an area where there happens to be as, you know, access to the care that you need readily available. But for others that lives in other parts of the country where that may not necessarily be the case, um, you know, would it be fair to say that in some ways they've got to kind of take control of, of their own fate and health there and kind of really push for some of these things uh, to, to, you know, be able to truly get diagnosed the right way? Yes, certainly. And that's the case. And that's even the role when I'm doing some peer support work and working with newly diagnosed about the importance of managing one's own personal health plan and being a strong advocate for oneself with doctors and pushing to make sure that coordination of care is there. Because if you're not doing that as a patient, no one is going to do it for you. And so you really do have to take control of your own health. It sometimes is very exhausting. I'll be the first to say that can become a full-time job. Yeah, I mean, it's with with all the moving pieces and everyone that you have to stay in, in contact with, I mean, that is literally a full-time job, you know, to keep up with everybody. Um, so, you know, if we circle this back to where, you know, looking at uh, just plasma in general and, um, and you know, it, it's pretty, it's clear, yes, plasma does help um, people and patients live a more ha healthier life. But I think what's missing from that part of it is understanding um, what about it actually does that, right? So, you know, being that you, you're a plasma recipient yourself, like, what about it? What about plasma actually does that? Um, so that, you know, for people listening, they can understand, like, okay, when I actually donate plasma, here's what actually is happening. Sure. I'm happy to answer that question because I will first say after plasma is donated, it goes through a very involved process. So if you're a donor out there listening to this, thank you for being a donor and know that your donation from the time it leaves you then enters a very long process of testing and then something called fractionation. And that's the manufacturing process. So let me pause there and I need you to stick with me on my farm analogy that is coming up. <laughs> so let's think about cows on a farm that are producing milk. So cows produce milk that not many people drink directly from the cow. Rather, that cow's milk is processed. So it's used to make the milk we drink, you know, skim, 2%, whole, whatever you like from your refrigerator uh, with your cereal. 
Cow's milk is used to make yogurt and cheese and great things like ice cream. So think of plasma as that raw cow's milk. Plasma starts off as this base product and then it's manufactured to create an end product during this fractionation process. So it goes from the raw, think of it like this raw product that then gets broken up in pieces. So fractionation is treating, cleaning, and breaking up that plasma into really small parts that can be used for different purposes, such as clotting factor that's used by persons with bleeding disorders, albumin that's often used to treat severe burn patients, and immunoglobulins that are used in the primary immune deficiency community with persons that live with B cell deficiencies like me. In my case, it's the immunoglobulins that I use because my body stopped making them at some point. So without the donated plasma that goes through all this testing and manufacturing process, my bo body would not have something as a replacement for what it stopped making. So that raw plasma that th is so important to me as a patient because if I didn't, if it didn't go through all that process and donors did not exist, I would not have anything to replace those immunoglobulins that my body can no longer produce. That, see that, I think that, that helps better really understand and get a clearer picture of, of just donating the plasma and the plasma making it straight into a patient because it's a whole different process, um, you know, especially uh, when you go and donate plasma at a plasma center. So that, I think that really helps to connect the dot there. So hopefully people can follow along with my cows, uh, my cow I, I, and farm. I got it. I yeah. Got it. <laughs> yeah. Again, not too many people uh, drink raw cow's milk. And there are some uses for whole plasma. We are seeing that in convalescent plasma treatment right now. But for the large part, it's that how plasma is broken down, where it makes the plasma so valuable to the recipients because of those very small parts are what keeps them alive or helps them heal. Yeah. And it, it's that uh, the that part in the, the the uses of plasma, and I was I was just reading, um, doing some research the other day, and realized that we were really barely touching the surfaces of, of the amount of proteins we're actually pulling out of plasma. There's so many more uh, left to be left to be discovered and left to be um, researched out there. That's right. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you coming on uh, again and just having you back on the show. Um, any, anything else that you would like to, to share? I just want to say to all of the donors out there, thank you for what you're doing. To all those persons who work in plasma centers with the donors, thank you for the job that you're doing. And if you're a donor, reach out, tell your friends and family about uh, the opportunity to be a plasma donor, share what you're doing with others and uh, increase, share the word about plasma donation and the value that it gives to those and uh, for many in different patient communities and to help help make the world better. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Thanks, Megan. Have, have a great one. Thank you, Mason. Goodbye. I want to thank Megan for joining us today. 
You can learn more about the Immune Deficiency Foundation by visiting primaryimmune.org. That's our show. Until next time, don't forget, be the difference because patients are counting on it. Thank you for listening to this weekly episode of What the Plasma. To download this episode plus more, go to whattheplasma.life or anywhere streaming podcasts. While you're there, make sure to subscribe. Also, don't forget to join the iPlasma Life community on your favorite social media platform. Catch you on the next episode. Until then, don't forget, you are the difference. So be the difference. Patients are counting on you.